Galatians chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there. Kids are getting situated and get your notebooks out, get your pencil. All right. Starting in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, contextually, that means, that means what Paul is talking about right here in this moment to the Galatians church is not only sin, Satan, and death, but he's also talking about freedom from religion, number one, and our old life, number two. Last week, we talked a lot about circumcision, and it was a lot of fun. And guess what? Paul's still going to talk about circumcision, so we're going to have to preach on that today. But he's going to move into another uh, quote-unquote Old Testament uh, example, the example of leaven today. So we'll have both to work with. Verse 2 says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Imagine being a young man in the Galatian church. You went to circumcision Sunday, and then Paul writes you a letter to say that meant nothing. I would be upset. I would request a meeting with the pastor post-haste. Verse 7 says, You were running well, and these will be our verses for today. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. We're going to spend a little bit of time in verse 12. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only, to, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Jesus your word is perfect and good. Your people in you, yeah, we're perfect and good, but outside of you, not so much. I pray today, Lord, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, teach us and reveal to us your word, not so that we have a lot of stuff up in our head that, that we know, a lot of facts that we can share and we can answer, answer Bible questions, but so that as we leave through these doors today, the world will look different to us. We will not look at you the same way. We will see you in more in, the, in the, the proper context in which you are. That we will see your glory and your majesty. That we would understand the gravity of the cross. That we would feel the weight of a, of a world that is dying around us. And that we would see and feel and know the urgency to preach your word. Whether it be through our words or whether it be through our actions. Lord, in any way, shape, and form that we can testify as to how great your son is, I pray, Lord, that today would be the beginning or the continuation of that process in us. That we would be more 
than just people who sit in a church, but that we would be Christ followers up and walking and running with Jesus unhindered by religion and the old life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So have you ever been running? Like, have you ever, my wife all of a sudden, she wanted to run one day. And I said, okay, let's run. I'm not a runner. I'm not built for running. I'm built for standing, even more so sitting. But it's, it has its benefits. I get that. My joke is, is, if you see me running, you should run too because something's chasing me and, and I only have to outrun you. Okay? That's, that's sort of a problem with me, the motivation to run. Paul uses this analogy. He just all of a sudden says, you were running so well. You were running really good. What happened to you? See, the Galatians, they started off with Paul kicking off the church, appointing elders and pastors, establishing the gospel in its most pure form, and then somewhere along the line, not suddenly, not a guy coming in who looked deceptive, but, but men came in with these subtle false theologies, and it, it, it corrupted the whole thing to where 10, 15 years later, now everything's got to be scrapped. All this, all this false teaching, there's, there's no redemption to it. It's got to go back to the original gospel that Paul preached through the word of God. And so, the big chunk of our message here today is that there is no time, there is no opportunity, there should be no allowance of false theology and doctrine in our walk with Jesus. Truthfully, we are going to have differences of opinion. Okay? We are going to think one thing and someone else is going to think something else. In some cases, we have liberty to do that. Here's a really good example. Christ's second coming. Everybody has an opinion as to when Jesus will return. Okay? Some say very soon. Some say I don't know. Some will even go as far as to sin and mark a day when Jesus will return. Some people, and I, and I think that they do this with good intentions, but they find themselves sort of sidetracked. They spend all of their time focused on Jesus' return in exact day. They lose sight of the Jesus that they're anticipating. Does that make sense? That they're so focused on knowing and being right that they miss the one that is righteous. They miss the one who is right. So we can have a difference of opinion in that. Now that line of sin that, that is crossed is when we try to predict the day he will return. Most Christians who have been Christian for just a short length of time will tell us or, or will tell you that, that that is unknowable, that Jesus himself said that that is not for us to know. So we don't know. And I see that making more sense than if he had told us when he was coming back. When I was a kid, if my mom and dad went to the store and said, okay, clean up while we're gone, I would ask, how long do you think you'll be gone? About two hours. Okay. So at about an hour and 55 minutes, I do the flight of the bumblebee and I clean up this place. And for an hour and 55 minutes, I get to play video games. See, I get to slack for a long time. And then at the end, I'll clean up so that everything, everything's proper and mom and dad come home and it's all kosher. If Jesus had given us a day when he would return, people would slack until that day. And this isn't the only reason why he didn't tell us. There's, there's tons of reasons that we'll never even know. But this is the one that I see that, that speaks loudest to me, that it, it keeps me disciplined more than if I knew the day he was coming back. 
Now, we can have a difference of opinion as to when we think Jesus is coming back. Next week, next year, next millennia. That doesn't change our eternal salvation. That doesn't change our standing with Jesus. However, there are teachings and doctrines and theologies, and these are just fancy words for what we believe about Jesus that are wrong, and they have to be severed from our lives. Pastors, preachers, teachers, you, they must be held accountable for the words that they were preached from a pulpit. You as individuals, you must question the things that are taught. Whether it's from me, your pastor, I mean, I love you. I'm glad to serve you. I've dedicated myself to, to doing both through Jesus. That does not make me perfect or infallible. I will get things wrong. And it will be up to you to go back to the word of God to study and then come to me. We can do this peaceably. We can do this lovingly and then say, hey, here's what you said. Here's what I read. You know what the first thing I'm going to ask you is? Show me your notes. Ah, see how I get you? Number one. Number two, once you show me those notes, then we can dialogue. If you've written down what I have said and what I have taught, we'll make sure that that all lines up. And then I will do one of two things. We will, we will sit down and do one of two things. I will apologize and say, man, you, you know, you're right. I never thought of it that way. I never saw it this way. Or if I see where you, you zigged where you should have zagged, then I will say, well, look, I see how you got there, but let's look at it. Let's, let's look at it more. Let's go back to the Bible and let's explore some more stuff. And we will engage in dialogue together. This is relationship. Does that make sense? In church, we don't want relationship anymore. We, we, we want to just go home, come back, get our stuff, go back home and not be bothered. That's not going to happen in the church. We are going to live life together continuously for a really long time in imperfection. And then we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be together for a really long time. Think about it for just a moment. Look around the room. For people who are Christians today, you will be connected to them for eternity. There will never come a day or a time where we will not be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that starts now, not then. It starts now. It gets better then, but it starts now. Paul says, you were, you were running so well, who hindered you? If you ever watched somebody, I love sports. I love, I love football. And you'll watch football. It's a very physical sport. And you'll see men, they'll be running and all of a sudden, boom, they blow out a hamstring and they limp off to the sideline. Or someone tackles them and, and, and they, they, they tear the ligaments in their knee and they can't get up. Someone came and blindsided them. And sometimes they, they, it's boom, it's a hit where they just fall. But sometimes it's a, it's a tiny injury. It's a tiny thing that comes in and then slowly over time, that ligament or that, or that bone is slowly breaking or cracking or tearing. And then by the end of their season, gosh, they, they can hardly walk and, and they're done. How many of you have ever started off with something really small, some, some health issue, and then, and then you just boom, one day it just hits you like a ton of bricks. I'm a firm believer. I mean, I... I believe in Jesus and love and this. How to get rid of a cold or the flu. You know, here's my, here's my method. I sleep. I go to bed and I sleep 
and I wake up and I drink something and I go back to sleep. Sure, I take medicines and the homeopathic stuff. I love that stuff, but I sleep. And here's why I do that. I can take a flu or a cold that will last almost a week and knock it out in two days. Most people say, no, 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 you gotta push on. You gotta keep going. You gotta work to do. No, you know what happens? Here's what happens. About five years ago, maybe longer, when I was working, I developed a small cough. Just a, just a post-nasal drip. Ugh, it, was just, it was horrible. Wake up and you, and you got that, that whole process in the morning where you clear yourself up, you take a shower. You get to work and you're pretty good. Then it got to a point where I couldn't stop coughing. Like, oh gosh. So then you start bringing cough drops to work and you're sucking those all day long. And I did this for about four weeks and it would kind of ebb and flow. It'd get a little worse. It'd get a little better, you know, just. And then one day, boom, fever of 104. I was, I was out of it. I was just so sick. And I was, I was taken out of work for a week. Had I just taken the time a month prior, sat down, rested my body, and let my body do what, what the Lord has created it to do, to recover and to recuperate and to fight whatever was coming against me, this probably could have been avoided. But no, I pushed past it, went through a month of suffering, only to go through another week of, of fluish hell. So my new motto is, I, I just sleep it off. I get it out of my body. I, I let my body fight and do what it's meant to do. And usually within a couple days, I can get through something. Yeah, I'm incapacitated for two days, but it, it prevents this long process. Now, what does it have to do with anything? Sometimes. The sin of sin, excuse me, the sin of religion and the sin of our old life is not a big blatant sin right in front of us. It's tiny. It's small, it's minute, and it introduces itself, and when it's, when it's religion, it's like, oh, it seems, it seems okay because it's so religious. If it's our old life, there's a comfort aspect to it or a familiarity to it, and, and we might allow it the first time, and then the second time, but slowly, ever so slowly, but ever so surely, it builds up, and within a, 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 whether, it's, uh, whether it's months or years or maybe even decades, before you know it, Boom! Your life is consumed with this sin. And for some, pride is entered in and they can't go the other way anymore. They can't repent any longer. That would mean admitting 10, 20, 30 years of folly. Nope, got to stay the course and, 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 and die in my sin rather than repent and show myself being foolish. Church, that is the, the, the gravity of the sin of religion and of the old life. Here's the analogy that Paul uses to exemplify that. The, the analogy or the parable of leaven. See, I've always thought that leaven was like yeast. It's actually not. I mean, it is, and it's in the, it, it causes bread to rise and that sort of thing. But if you've ever made bread with yeast, usually it's a powder and either it's an it's a instant yeast, so you just throw it in or it's, you soak it or something, give it sugar, you feed it. It's like an animal you put in the bread and, and it rises. It's actually closer when it's used biblically, it's closer to like a sourdough bread. Okay, and sourdough bread, what you do is you make a batch and before you bake the whole thing, you take a piece out of the, of the wet dough mixture and you save it. And then the next day or whenever you go to make bread again, you add all the ingredients to that. Okay, and that, and that starter will be used, be used continuously. You'll always take a piece off and start your new loaf, okay? 
Um, that's sort of the same idea when Paul uses and when the Bible uses the idea of leaven, that's what the Bible's talking about. Here's the thing about leaven. Once you get it into bread, you can't take it out. In the Bible, there's, there's leavened bread and unleavened bread. And with the exception of just one or two uh, ceremonies, un, uh, leavened bread was not allowed in temple sacrifice. It was always unleavened bread. If you had bread with leaven in it, you scrap the whole thing. What, what a baker would do or a person who would make this bread would do is they would take this, this small little batch, this, this old batch, the, the, the previous batch, and introduce it to the new ingredients. And what happened is that instantly that leaven begins to expand and attach itself to the rest of the loaf, causing it all to grow. At that point, it is too late. There is no longer a process to which you can take the leaven out of the loaf. The loaf has been leavened. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. A little sin corrupts the whole thing. A little bit of your old life means it's growing and corrupting your new life. A little bit of religion is corrupting the life of freedom that Christ has died for, for you and given to you as a free gift. And so, Religion, what do I mean by religion? Anything that man has built to reach God. Lighting a candle, meeting on a certain day, wearing a funny hat, just any religious practice that makes man think, ah, I did something for God to notice me. See, we, we don't believe in that. We turn that around and we say, God has done all things to reach out to us through Jesus, his son, by the death on his, on his cross. That now the religion that the Bible says is acceptable in the book of James is caring for orphans and caring for widows and, and keeping yourself unstained and unblemished from the world. It's actually not religion at all. It's like saying the best offense is a good defense or a good defense is the, be, you know, the best defense is a good offense. The best religion is the absence of religion and actually serving other people and helping other people, those who can't help themselves and for those who, who are, are, are powerless and have no protection and have no leader. Few things in your walk with Christ will hinder you quite like religion and the old life. When you're born again, and let us not lose sight of that, that phrase. In the Bible, Jesus says you must be born again. In John chapter three, you must be born again. If you, are be, if you are a Christian today, it's not because you made a choice. It's not because you come to church on Sunday or because you read your Bible. You are a Christian because of the life Christ has given you through his self, through his sacrifice. You are able, capable, and encouraged and commanded to be born again. Sin and death, or excuse me, sin brings death. So, so before Christ, we are dead. But in Christ, when we, when we confess our faith in him, when we, when we understand the offer of grace, we're born again. And that begins what can sometimes be a slow process, but a process nonetheless of sanctification. A process where you are being set apart from the world and your old life 
and you're growing and maturing and, and living in this new life. That means, that means the old life, there are things that can be redeemed, but there are traps in the old life that, that are wanting to be introduced like that leaven into the new loaf that are trying to come in and you've got to keep them out. On top of that, there is religion and false doctrine and false teachings. All kinds of crazy weirdo teachings are available on the internet today. You can find the weirdest stuff. Watched a video today of a man who, not today, I didn't watch it, but just recently, of a man who claims to be Jesus. He lives in Florida and he has a church where everybody believes he's Jesus. Okay, nobody understood that. He thinks he's Jesus, okay? Let that, ah, just makes my head want to explode. He, and, and not only that, now it's one, it's, it's one thing for one man to claim, I'm Jesus. Okay, that's one thing. But to see groups of tens and twenties and hundreds flocking and rejoicing that, oh, it's Jesus. Look at him, it's Jesus over there, here in Florida. It's Jesus. That's the part I can't get my mind around. How do you not, how do you not see through that? How do you allow yourself to be, your, your, your spirit to be penetrated by something so evil and so wrong? The Bible says, Jesus said, people will say, there he is, there he is, there he is. And he'll say, no, that's not me. And there's people going, there he is. And people are like, oh yeah, there, there he is. Let's forget the Bible. There's Jesus. There are people, teachers, pastors, by title, but not by calling, who will tell you that God's greatest joy is that you would be happy. Church, I would like for you to be happy. I'd much rather you be holy. And I believe that God's intent is first for you to be holy before you're ever happy. Now, that doesn't mean God's called you to a life of sullenness and darkness, and there were some t- somehow these gothic Christians that never have any kind of uh, joy. In just a few weeks, we'll look at the, the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 6, where one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. But to just be happy momentarily by a thing or a situation, it's so shallow and so brief, and it's the spiritual equivalent of a hot dog. I mean, hot dogs are good, but you never question what's in them, right? I mean, it's, it's the spiritual filler. It's just gross. I'm here to tell you that life is empty, as the life that you were once living. But when you attach yourself to Christ, when you are in Christ, when you and him are like this, when you are found in him, when you have repented of your sins, when you have experienced the grace of God, then you understand that the greatest joy is not stuff here, but Christ himself. And what that does is that liberates you to enjoy the stuff here. I can, I can love my children because God has blessed me with a gift or I can worship my children because I can live vicariously through them. I can make them do and, and have all the things that I wish I had had. And one of those is sin and one of those is the proper way. Both scenarios include me and children but, but, but one is, is following after Jesus and the other one is just being an idol worshiper. See church, I, I love my children but I don't worship them. I worship one, his name is Jesus. And as a result, I now enjoy my children in the proper context. I enjoy them the way God intended. It's not like, oh kids, we're so sad. I only love Jesus and I don't love you. 
No, it's like, oh gosh, you're my son and you're my daughter and I'm your dad. That's like Jesus and, and the father and, and oh, I love you guys. Let's go play Legos. Like that's, I get to love them in the proper context rather than worshiping them and ruining a relationship with them. It's not about forsaking happiness. It's about experiencing joy. Few things will weaken your run with Christ faster than the old life. Or I shouldn't say faster, slower rather than religion and the old self. Maybe it's the way you used to talk. Maybe it's the way you used to think about money. Maybe it's the way you used to converse with your wife or husband. Maybe it's the way you used to parent. Maybe, maybe it's just the way you saw God in general. And when you're born again, all that gets scrapped. When you get born again, you have to come with this understanding that the old lifestyle didn't work. The, the old things before, they were leading you to sin and death. The new now is different. And there's a different way to handle yourself. And there's a different way to pursue peace. And there's a different way to raise your kids. And there's a different way to live your life. And, and it will be empowered by the Holy Spirit, but, but you've got to become cognizant of that first. Many Christians get bogged down in that first couple of years simply because they thought life was never going to change or hoped that life was never going to change. And I'm here to tell you, yes, life changes dramatically and drastically. Paul says, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Here's what basically is what he's saying. I would be accepted more when I preach because if you've read the book of Acts and you've read his letters, you realize that when Paul preaches, stuff happens. There's riots and people get angry and he gets arrested. I mean, it's not like Sunday church when we have church. Like Paul speaks and things go nuts, Okay. He says, if I was just preaching the same old stuff that everybody else was preaching, then I wouldn't be persecuted the way that I am. But I'm preaching Jesus and the cross and him crucified and to the human flesh, to the regular person not born again, it is an offense. The cross is offensive to the natural man. It confronts you and it demands a response and many times, the men and the women who are presented with the cross, they shy away from it. It's not offensive in the way that things that are crude are offensive. It's offensive because it comes against us. It comes against me. It knocks me down from the position of God of my life and reminds me that I'm the sinner and that Jesus is not. That I should die for my sins, but Jesus has. And Paul says, if I was preaching the same old message that all these other bozos were preaching, then it'd be okay. Nobody'd be persecuting me. I'd have a timeshare in Florida and everybody'd be okay. And, and everybody'd be watching my show on, on the religious channel. But he's saying, no, I, I preach the cross. That Christ was crucified, that God came in the form of a man, grew and, and lived a sinless life and died on a cross for me. See, Paul was never, never beaten. There was no riots because Paul was a giver. There was, no, there was no riots because Paul was generous or because he was a tent maker or because he traveled. Why was Paul persecuted? Because of the cross. Because he preached Jesus 
and not religion. He preached Jesus and the radical transformation that comes from him and not, hey, here's Jesus, just keep living your life and let him be your, your fire escape. Let him be your fire insurance. There are a lot of false teachings out there that we must be aware of. Now, now rather than focus on the false teachings, I wanna focus on the true teachings. But here are some of the lies that we believe first and then we'll move into the truth. The first lie is that Jesus loves you as long as you give. That if you give into my life or this ministry or, or this organization, as long as you give, then Jesus will love you. And if you stop giving, well, Jesus' love is run dry and you're gonna have to you know, give to prime the pump to keep the blessings flowing, okay? That's the first lie. Lie number two is that as long as you perform, then Jesus will love you. As long as you do ministry, as long as you preach the gospel, as long as you evangelize, as long as you teach, as long as you, you know, make food for somebody, as long as you keep doing these things, then God will love you. That's lie number two. Lie number three. That you go first. That God and you are in this proverbial chess match. And he's just waiting for you to move so he can knock you down and show you how much of a better player he is. Or that if you'll just help yourself, then God will help you. That God helps those who help themselves. That's lie number three. Here are the truths. Number one, God, uh, Jesus loves you. Let's just start right there. Jesus loves you. I had the great honor of trying to explain to my son this week that Jesus died for our sins long before we ever sinned. So first off, Jesus loves you. And because he loves you, you can give. See, today if you gave, you gave not so that God would love you. God loved you and gave to you so that you might give too. So that you could be like your father in heaven. If you give to somebody else, it's not because you're trying to, or it shouldn't be because you're earning God's love. It's because God's love has been given and bestowed to you. And so you want to do the same for others. So Jesus doesn't love you because you give. Jesus loves you, so you give. Number two, Jesus loves you, gives you the Holy Spirit so that you are able to perform. Here's what I mean. He's called us to do things like love our enemies. That's a lot of fun. He's called us to give, to be sacrificial givers. The word sacrifice, that, ins that just insinuates at least some pain. And he has called us to go and to make disciples of all the people of the earth. But not in our own power. He has empowered us to go and to perform, to go and do these things. I, I shared last Wednesday a story of when I, when I had to preach, uh, share the gospel with somebody once. And it was, it, was, it was great. But honestly, it was one of the few, I, I would call them victories. Because with that one Victoria story, there was 10 at least stories of where I, I said the wrong thing or didn't say the right thing or, or whatever. The, the, tr the point of it is that Jesus is there to empower you to do what you need to do and say what you need to say. Not, not so that he might love you. He loves you already. Number three, God has already gone first. 
Jesus has already died on the cross for you. Jesus has already done all things to reconcile you to God. He's not waiting to help those who help themselves. He is ready to help you because you cannot help yourself. See, when you get these in the right order, it lifts a burden off your shoulders. Now it's no longer all up to me, it's all up to God. Imagine your children walking around the house saying things like, how am I going to pay these bills? I'm five years old, I don't have a job. I got to pay these bills. You'd look at them and be like, you don't even have a job. Like how, why is this even your worry? Why is this your problem? Oh, I just, I just, I just got to get this done. And, and that way I know mom and dad, you'll love me. I mean, if that was my children. I just look at them and be like, I, I took care of those things. You get to enjoy them because I love you. Now, because I love you, go clean your room. Like, see, see the difference? They can go and do stuff because I have already done my part. I went and paid the bills long before you even knew how to worry for them. Don't let the lies come in. Now, let's go to, um, let's look at two different verses. Verse 10, verse 12. Paul is going to generally, for lack of information, he doesn't know who these men are, so, so he's got to be a little general rather than specific. He's going to talk about the men who have taught false theologies in the Galatian church. Here's what he says in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, the, he will bear whatever penalty that Jesus has for him for preaching and teaching false doctrine. Verse 12 says this. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is a fun verse, church. Now, I want to be very cautious here. There is a time for peace and there is a time for war. There is a time where we have muffins and flowers. And there's a time where generally everything's okay and we have ice cream and we just talk. But then there's time to pull out the scalpel, to pull out the knife and start cutting things out of our lives. The false doctrines, the false theologies, identifying who's preaching them and cutting them out of our lives. And Paul uses this word emasculate. I wish, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So let's do a Greek word study on the word emasculate. It's a word found only five other times in the New Testament, Okay. It literally means to amputate, to cut off. What were we just talking about in context? Came up a lot, started with the letter C, circumcision. Okay, now I want to do my best to not be crude. However, I do want to be as bold as the word of God. If the word of God is allowed to be this bold, then I will work underneath that boldness. How about that? So let's look at these five verses. The first two, Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, what do you do? You cut it off. Okay? The other two, or two other references, are in reference to Peter when he cut off a man's ear. Now, did he just slice it? Did he just kind of poke it? No, he cut the man's ear clean off his head. The last is used in the book of Acts. When Paul is on a ship that's about to, to crash and one of the last ditch efforts to keep the boat intact, they decide to just 
let go of all the cargo and they cut off the ropes that held the cargo onto the ship. I, I just don't want to leave any room for speculation or any room for wiggle here. Emasculate literally means to cut off completely. And Paul is saying to the men who are preaching circumcision, just go further and cut the whole thing off. I wish that's what they would do. Now, this is not our go-to as Christians. It's not our default mode to be this brash and this harsh and this, uh, this bold in this sense. However, there is a time and a place and it comes with false doctrine and it comes with false theology. When it comes down to somebody preaching the wrong thing about Jesus, not just a difference of opinion, not just in things that we don't have a definite answer on, but they're saying things like there is no hell, that Jesus is not the only way, that God wants you to be happy more than holy, that God wants to make you rich, that God never wants you to be sick or, or, or will never allow you to be sick. When there are bad doctrines and theologies, there's no, there's no assimilating it into our lives or letting it exist with us. It's cutting it off completely. It's cutting it out. And, and let this be a warning to you today. Jesus says this in Mark chapter four. He's giving a lot of parables to his disciples and to people listening to him. And, he, and he's talking a lot about seed and the kingdom of God and, and soil. And he takes the disciples aside and in verse 24 it says, it says he, say to them, he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, you know, bad, you know what? Uh, let me give you bad theology. This is all about how God wants you to have stuff. See? See, God says that he'll give you more stuff. Wrong. Wrong. You take these verses out just where they are, just like that, then yeah, maybe you can manipulate them to say that, but that's not what it says. Contextually, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about these parables. He's talking about what you listen to. Who are you paying attention to? Who are you worshiping through attention? Who is speaking into your life? Who is teaching you about Jesus? All I'm asking you to do today is to go back to the things that have been taught to you and question them. Not to create a spiritual paranoia where everybody's out to get you. That's not what I mean. There is a truth and, and, and Jesus is that truth. But you've got to pay attention. Some of you will listen to me simply because I'm right here. Some of you will take everything I say to be, to be infallible simply because I'm up here and you're not. That's wrong. Jesus says, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention. With the measure you use, with the attention that you give, with the amount of dedication, literally, if you will just come and just sit at the feet of Jesus and just wait and hear him talk and listen to him and pray and read his word and be in fellowship and serve others, if you will just park yourself in front of Jesus in that way. With that measure, it will be given back to you. Because in this scenario, there were people who were hearing these parables being like, I don't know, I gotta go wash dishes. I don't know, there's laundry to be done. Jesus said something about seed, I gotta go. And then there was the disciples who said, wait a minute, Jesus, you said something about seed. Tell me about that. What does that mean? Oftentimes, prayer and reading the word, is not about like, oh, I read the word, I know everything now. 
It's about Jesus. I just read this thing about this man. Here's the most recent one for me. I, I read about this man. He was in the tombs and he was so crazy and demon-possessed that, that he couldn't be shackled. He was so, these demons acted so physically in his body that he couldn't be shackled. And then, and then these demons asked, don't send us away, put us in the pigs, and you gave them permission. Why did you give them permission? And then this guy wants to follow you and you tell him no. How come the pigs, the demons can go in the pigs, but this guy can't follow you? I don't have any answers yet. But see, this is, this is, this is the attention that you've got to give to Jesus. This is what you have to do when you're reading the word. I've read your word. I haven't just met a quota. I got questions, man. What, what does this mean? Paul says he wishes these guys would emasculate themselves. I have only heard that word used in very negative context, Jesus. Please explain to me what this means. And then be prepared for an answer. This is what it means to pursue Jesus. This is what it means to, to, to sit at the feet of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. The disciples, the 12 who followed him, they were with him day and night and they walked with him and they were hungry with him and they were, they were on storm battled ships with him continuously day in and day out. That's a disciple. A disciple is not somebody who shows up Sunday morning and that's it. A disciple is somebody who lives with Jesus every day. Now, I don't know your guys' life outside of this church. Some of you, I, I know more than others, but most of you will go home and I won't see you again until Wednesday or Sunday. But just in the evidence that I've seen in those two days, if I see you those two days, first off, it's, it's, it's real easy to talk the game, but your actions and your lifestyles prove otherwise. There's a marked difference between somebody who pursues Christ and someone who pursues church or pursues religion. Let's put it that way. And so I want this day to be a day to remind you that, that not only are some of your guys' running hindered, you guys aren't even running anymore because you've been hindered either by the old life or you've been hindered by religion or some other thing that has slowly penetrated your life. Maybe it started decades ago. Maybe it started last week. Either way, it started. And now we've got to scrap the whole batch. When it comes to baking a loaf of bread, if the leaven's been introduced, you cut it. You scrap it. If your goal is unleavened bread, let that be a symbol of holiness. If your goal is holiness, you can't pick the leaven out of the loaf. Scrap the loaf. That means repentance. Church, I'm going to teach you the same way I teach my own children. Repentance is necessary not just for the sinners that don't know Jesus. Repentance is necessary for Christians who are pursuing Christ because we are going to make mistakes. We are going to sin. We are go going to fall short. And when we don't repent, do you know what we do? It's like opening the door to pride. When you refuse to repent, you have opened the door to pride. Pride and repentance can't exist together. If there's pride in your repentance, you're not repenting. But pride and repentance cannot coexist. If you're repenting, that means you're crucifying your flesh and the pride is being crucified with it. Jesus said to his disciples, count the cost gave two examples. He gave an example of a man who was building a house, didn't count the cost of what it would cost to build that house, and was unable to finish that house. For you men who are contractors, first off, remember that Jesus was a carpenter? 
I don't know where we get this idea that Jesus was like Bon Jovi from 1986. Like, I don't know where we get that feathered hair and beautiful. I don't get that. If you're a contractor today, look at your hands. Those are, that's what Jesus' hands would have looked like. Rough and torn, scarred, broken. Now he's sinless, so I don't know if hitting your thumb with a hammer is a sin, but I'm assuming that he hit his thumb every now and again. I'm sure his hands looked rough. That's, that's the Jesus you served. And he knew what it, what it took to build something, and he knew what it cost to build something. And he said, look, disciples, count the cost. It's going to cost you your life. Is it worth it? I guarantee you it's worth it, but that's the choice you have to make. Is it worth it? If your end goal is Jesus, yes, it's worth it. If your end goal is religion, no. You're like the man who built the house and didn't count the cost. You end up with a half-built house. So this is upbeat and encouraging, isn't it? A lot of fun, right? Okay, well, let's bring it back around then. All right. Let's start with repentance. We don't repent so that we experience the grace of God. We've experienced the grace of God so that we might repent. Today's your opportunity to repent. Now, you could do that from the altar, or you could do this from your seats. I usually encourage people to do the thing they don't want to do. You could do it in either place, okay? But if you're like, I'm afraid to go to the altar, I say go to the altar. But why? Because you're afraid and you've got to get over that fear. If you're not afraid of the altar, well, then you can do it either place. Don't, don't try to play mind games. Just do it or don't. Let's start with repentance. Let's repent of the old leaven, the old life, religion coming in, and let's, cut, let's, let's begin this process and pray that the Lord would identify for us false doctrine and theology. And you might need follow-up to this. You might say, Pastor Tony, I need, I need you to help me out because these are the men or the women that I've trusted over the years. Please talk to me. Show me what they believe, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, on one hand, I can help you. On one hand, all I can do is, is really just pray with you. But I will identify as best I can, and I will give you my blacklist if, if I need to, um, of men and women that I would never sit under um, about Jesus. Maybe they're good at other things, but preaching Jesus, not so much. Um, but let's pray. Let's pray repentance together. Let's pray that God would help us to see that which is that permeated our lives so that we may emasculate it from our lives, cut it off, amputate it out of our lives so that we can run. If you've ever noticed like a real runner, like a professional runner, you don't see them, you know, in denim jeans, wearing a parka, big backpack. What do you see? Those tight, or excuse me, those, those really short, uncomfortable to look at shorts, tank tops that it's like dental floss and a napkin. It's like barely anything. Maybe a headset and that's it. Why? Because they want nothing hindering them as they run. And church, some of us were running in the denim pants and the parkas and the backpacks. We got all this stuff. Time to cut it all out. Let's pray. You don't even have to stand today. Because I'd rather you pray sitting than stand waiting to go home. Make sense? Give me one second. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. Um, 
Not because we're good at it and not because it comes naturally, but because you deserve it. Simply as being the son of God, simply being the creator of all the universe, you are worthy of our praise. But Lord, we want to take that a step further. Father, for these, for these paths that you've given us to run, Lord, we want to run and run well. We don't want to be hindered. We don't want to stop because it's gotten hard. Lord, we, we know that you've extended grace and now we choose to repent. I pray that you would hear the cry of our hearts today. And for some of us, this is a confusing moment. This is a moment where, where we're not really sure what we're asking for. We just know that it's something we need to do. And I'm praying for those who pray that today, Lord, that you would begin to identify the old life and religion and false doctrine and theology and false teachers in the same way that Paul and the Galatian church have had to do. And maybe we don't even know where we've learned these things from. We just know that we're carrying them and it's hindering our walk or it's hindering our run and we want to cut them out of our lives. So Father, help us to identify and to see through the facade and get to the heart so that we may not be hindered in our run. That we may keep pace with you, Jesus. That we may sit at your feet. That we may worship you. Without, without any kind of hindrance, Lord, and become students and disciples and Christ followers in a world of wishy-washy Christians who, who, who are Christians by name only, Lord. May we stand out, not because we're really great, but because we have your son. We've been born again and we are different. And Jesus, I pray against the pride that would, that would prohibit true repentance. Lord, for those right now who are struggling with that pride, I'm praying, Lord, that they wouldn't just repent because they have to, but that they would see that even that is to be repented of. That they turn away from that life into the new. And Lord, take us now in a place of repentance, in a place of your grace and mercy, in a place where we have forsaken. Now take us forward to see and to identify and to understand and to look past the, the, the things on the front, Lord, and get to the heart of each issue. And not be spiritually paranoid, but be so focused on you that we see the truth, that we practice discernment, and we know when there is false and when there is truth. And we give you the praise today. In Jesus' name, amen.